Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we're here today because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We recognize it is an unmerited gift of grace alone that brought us safely here to fellowship today. We recognize this morning your steadfast love, O Lord, which is great and so precious. It reaches, Lord, into the heavens extends to the clouds. Lord, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Father, Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, You save, O Lord. How precious is the steadfast love of our God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of Your wings. We feast on the abundance of Your house. We drink from the river of Your delights. For in you is a fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. Lord, these verses from your Psalms remind us that our source, our sustenance, our safety, our refuge, our life, and our light is in you. And so we are totally yours. Totally yours. We have been purchased by your blood, Jesus Christ. I pray that this message would sink in deeply so that we might live like we are purchased by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if there is any here who fellowship with us, who do not have the assurance that the seed of the word of the kingdom of God has fallen on good soil in their heart, made so by the plowshare of God's word in the hand of His Spirit, I pray, Lord, that You would soften the sin-hardened heart Draw them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ by a work of Your grace alone. That they might join us in worship and in love of Your Holy Scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. You cannot put a value on the privilege and opportunity that we have as His people to come together, to open up His Word, and to praise Him in one accord. And so I'm so thankful that the Lord has brought us together again this morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13 if you would. The title of this morning's message is Sower, Seed, and Soil. Sower, Seed, and Soil. Three pictures that come from the parable of the sower from Matthew 13. In our series in Matthew... We've been walking through the discourses and even covering ground in between. And here we're at Jesus' third great sermon. And in this sermon, we brought to our attention recently, it was brought to our attention recently that there are seven parables. The first three are are agriculturally related. They have imagery that refers to planting, seeds, growing, harvesting, weeds, soil, sower, and so on. All of these pictures teach us something about the truths of the Scriptures and the truth of the Word of the Kingdom of God as it's given to us in verse 19 in reference to the seed. In this section of seven parables, the parable of the sower is the first of these kingdom comparisons in this third great discourse in Matthew. The first of three parables that are escalating in their descriptions of the aspects of the kingdom of God that these planting analogies help us to understand. This first parable that we'll study this morning, the parable of the sower, speaks to the realm of the kingdom of God as it applies to the soil of the human heart. That is, as touching the individual aspects of the human heart. We move on to the second planting parable, and I trust, Lord willing, we'll cover it in future weeks that deals with more of the corporate aspects What about all the subjects of the kingdom of God if indeed He reigns over all the earth and history? What about those who don't know Him? And we find the parable of the seed and the weeds that grow alongside, giving us some help and some instruction in that regard. And thirdly, there's historical realities that are pictured for us in the mustard seed analogy 
in parable number three. Note additionally, it always strikes me as genius how the Word of God surpasses the criticism and indeed marks every man a fool who thinks this book is trivial or outdated. I once was in an argument with someone who scoffed at the picture in Scripture of the streets of heaven paved with gold. And the question just occurred to me, I like to think by the power of the Holy Spirit, to ask him this question, can you think of any other symbol of value that would be more universally recognized to mankind than gold? I don't think there is another more universally recognizable symbol of, human, of value, wealth, between cultures and peoples than gold. Gold has always been recognized in most every developed society as a medium of exchange because it's worth something in its rarity, in its beauty, its desirability, its resplendence, and so on. So the picture of gold in Scripture to describe something of value is a way of God, the holy, condescending, making Himself known to us, the lowly, is a perfect analogy. It's a perfect imagery. And so it is, I would say, with agriculture. Why? Because everyone alive in this room eats regularly. All of our bodies are dependent on food, that which the ground produces. And notice in this passage, in this chapter, that we have not only agriculture, but also wealth analogies. Again, pearl of great price, treasure buried in a field, and industry even. Fishermen. Jesus Christ picks three universal human concepts that translate cross-societally and cross-historical eons, agriculture, wealth, and industry to communicate the kingdom of God to us. This is the genius of our Lord. The Bible is eternally relevant. I love to point out those details as they occur to me and to give the glory to God for writing timeless Scripture that we can understand with the Spirit's help as assuredly as it was understood when it was spoken, provided we have ears to hear. These agriculture and wealth and industry analogies are interesting in that they are universally communicable across cultures and time. But also, imagine how many other things these specific details tell us about God's Word. They can even speak to us as to biblical economics the implied and the expressed purposes and language of parable is truly a well of depth that we have just scratched the surface and will just scratch the surface even as we try to plumb its depths deeper this morning just one more brief introductory note for you this morning imagine in the middle east or in the near east i should say around the time that this was written And there were farmer's fields at that time, and I read a little bit to discover what they might look like. And there were usually a quadrant, a plot of land adjacent to a city, a town, village or established, you know, dwellings and so on. And there would be mile or there would be markers, monuments on the corners, and different people would own different plots of land. And those areas would be tilled by hand, of course, but they would often be crisscrossed by trails, well worn by the planters. They would cross those trails or go down those trails, they would be the trodden areas, the hard areas, and they would throw their seed. You can imagine as we put ourselves into the world that Jesus was speaking to then, the agriculture of their day, not having the equipment that we do right now, bobcats, tractors, and otherwise, that there would be areas where the soil would be less favorable to growth because there would still be rocks remaining underneath the surface. And there could be areas around the edges too that might border some other uncultivated territory, and perhaps weeds, seeds would blow in and get things like thorns and thistles growing up among the crop. So it's kind of the picture and the setting with which we can be familiar ourselves in our experience with agriculture and also maybe uh, reminding ourselves about the more primitive state of agriculture in the time when this message was delivered. So with that, that introduction, let's read again the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 1 through 8. And then we'll follow that by the explanation in verses 18 through 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. 
And as he sowed, some seeds fell among the path, along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But verse 6, when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Later after this, the disciples asked why you spoke in parables. Last time we were in Matthew, we discussed that section, verses 10 through 17. Jesus proceeds to give the explanation, the interpretation of the story we've just read in verse 18 and following. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the, of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundred, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And so we have in Matthew 13, verses 1 through 8, and then secondly in verses 18 through 23, the parable of the sower proclaimed and the parable of the sower explained. Under that heading, I'll give you point number one of this message, the proactive aspects. There's something active that's going on. There's a sower and there's seed, the proactive aspects of this parable. So let's consider them for just a moment, the sower and the seed. First of all, consider the sower as Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we reminded ourselves of this summary verse with this great book on the unity, the harmony of the covenants, opens by saying, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. These verses in Hebrews chapter 1 remind us of the significance of the moment where a man dressed like any other commoner is speaking in a language the heart of heart and the dull of hearing cannot understand. But for those whose hearts have been changed to understand, eyes have been opened to see, and ears had been unstopped to hear, they would perhaps realize what Jesus Himself said in verse 17 of the same chapter, Truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let us be brought to this text in awe and reverence that the incarnate God, man, Jesus Christ, has spoken. These words are recorded for us as fulfillment of prophecy. This was an anticipated moment for millennia. Prior to the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Word of God had come. But it was... And shades and glimpses, pictures and types that only spoke a whisper of what would soon be trumpeted upon the arrival 
of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, stepping His incarnate foot upon the soil of this terrestrial sphere that you and I share. This moment in history is one upon which the meaning of the past and the meaning of the future forever rest and hinge. It is the fulcrum of understanding, of intelligibility, of meaning for all of life. For your life, for mine, for any life that's lived, and anyone that will be born in the history. The fact that God has spoken through His Son, and through His Son has provided redemption for mankind. And here, we have the Son of God speaking as to how that message is received by individuals who are dying in their sins, and indeed dead in their sin for lack. Of salvation. The sower ultimately is Christ. It is Christ who has spoken. It is Christ who has offered his body as the sacrifice, his blood, and upon his word and upon his sacrifice, the seed is real and manifest. That is, the word of the kingdom, the truth of the gospel, the hope for mankind is cast abroad, as it were, and lands upon the soil, various soils of the hearers. Again, in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And the great crowds gathered about Him so that He got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. We take that section, those first three verses, and then we line them up with the corresponding interpretation. We read verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, This is what was sown along the path. Prior to that explanation of the first soil, we get the identity of the seed. The seed is the word of the kingdom. We also have the term again, the sower. We've made the case, first of all, that the sower is Christ. But I would secondly make the case from the context here of sower as scribes. God has commissioned other sowers in His kingdom. Turn over to the end of the same chapter. Matthew, after recording these parables, says in summary and conclusion, verse 51. In fact, this is Jesus still speaking. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, verse 52. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Therefore, again, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. That is an interesting piece of information given here. But I think the application becomes clear when we consider that Jesus Christ is speaking to his disciples He has commissioned them in a limited way in chapter 10 to bring the message of the kingdom out. And then he would commission them in an expansive way, the great commission in chapter 28 at the end. And he's also commissioned commissioned his authors of scripture, as it were, scribes like Matthew, to record his words and also the apostles to write, interpret, and apply the word of God for generations to come to see, to hear, and to understand when the Spirit gives light and understanding for everyone to know what Jesus Christ has said. And so when we think of ourselves as sowers, we must think of ourselves as scribes. When we sow the Word of God, we are not speaking our words. Our ideas are something independent of what God has spoken. But we only speak with authority and we only speak valuable things insofar as we understand, are studious, and have learned what Jesus Christ, what the Holy Spirit has already spoken. And so it is given in this same section of Scripture, this discourse, that every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom 
is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Matthew is a great example of a scribe. Matthew certainly brought out of the treasure of the Old Testament prophecies of what Isaiah had spoken and others. And then he related them to what Jesus fulfilled as he walked this earth. I'm reminded of one in chapter 4. We've mentioned many times that nothing is incidental or trivial in the Gospels. Not even Jesus' pathway and journey from point A to point B. To illustrate this, where attention is brought to the fulfillment of prophecy and the way Jesus traveled in 4.13, says, In leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Then here's the prophecy, recalling from the Old Testament, verse 15, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, and a shadow of death, on on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we see Matthew, the diligent scribe, drawing from the storehouse of the old and new. He remembers the prophecy of the Old Testament in Isaiah of the significance of the pathway the Messiah would walk. And then he relates, he sees that these words are being fulfilled before his eyes in his time when Jesus Christ begins to preach to to peoples that were once outcast and rejects, caught in the deadness of their sin. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Can we learn something from Matthew's example? Can we learn something from Jesus' admonition? Absolutely. And it could be simply stated as this, know your scriptures, love the Bible. Look for those connect the dots moments when something you're, remi- you're mindful of, you're reminded of, and you're through the Bible reading appears in the New Testament. Do some back and forth. And then the next time you have a conversation, maybe you can be a good sower. Like a diligent scribe, taking out of your storehouse something from the Old Testament and from the New and spreading it upon the soil of your relatives, your co-workers, people you're going to school with, your children, whomever the Lord might lead you to. And so we have it, sower ultimately as Christ, but secondly as a scribe of Christ, as a student of Christ, as a student of the Word, we, His people, studying and then disseminating what we learn from the Scriptures can walk in the footsteps of a Matthew by drawing attention to what God has already said. Secondly, under the proactive aspects, we've talked about the seed, I'm sorry, the sower, sower as Christ, sower as scribes. And secondly, let's consider the seed. The seed as, we're given here its meaning, the word of the kingdom. Again in chapter 13, verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and there you have in that first phrase, the key to understanding seed. What is the seed? The seed is the word of the kingdom, as we've mentioned. The seed is, in the example I just gave, the whole counsel of God, the old and the new. I remember a brief negative illustration for you. In my experience, I have more negative illustrations than I do positive ones to offer you. I remember when I was in Bible school, and actually this, I told this story to my son yesterday. Jack asked, hey, do you know anybody that's been in a major motion picture? I said, yeah, yours truly. And uh, so I began to tell the story, impress my son about my college days. There, I haven't even seen the movie. I'm not even going to tell you the name. I heard it's reprehensible. But the, the news came you know, to Dallas. They're going to film a, a movie about the NFL or something like it. They probably couldn't use the names under license or whatever. And so come to Texas Stadium. We'll give you free lunch. And your team is the Dallas Knights, right? And so wear red or something and cheer for them. And you can be in a major motion picture. So my friends and I got together and we thought, what could we do to redeem this film for God? So we got a big poster board, and we put John 3.16 on it. We were inspired by the great epic uh, tribute song by Steve Taylor, Bannerman. Two of you will get that reference. So we go to a Texas stadium, 
And they're filming all this, and LL Cool J is there, Al Pacino and stuff, and this and that. And they, I don't know, they film like two cheesy uh, plays. And every time the cheering is going on, we're raising up our John 316 banner. Well, in spite of all the good we thought we were doing, I didn't even watch the film because, again, I heard it was atrocious, not something worthy for Christian eyes to lay, lay sight upon. But oddly enough, that banner I, I heard from my buddies who watched, made the mistake of watching it does show up a couple times in the film. Now, here's a question for you. You know, we, of course, thought that was seed, you know, sown, good seed. Do you guys think that did any good? You have a film that's rated R. It's full of reprehensible material. It's glorifying man. You're seeing the story play out before you that is likely a soap opera of illicit relationships on top of a self-indulgent lifestyle of sports, money, and fame. And everybody loves and worships these great famous actors and gives each other awards for pretending to be people way better than other people can pretend to be people. That's what the uh, Oscars are. And at the end of the day, in spite of the seed we thought we were sowing, in reality, I don't think that's a good example of what it means to be a diligent scribe. I think a better example of what it means to be a diligent scribe is to take time to share with people the Word of God, in a more comprehensive way. We need to bring out of our treasure, from our experience, things from the old and from the new. Be prepared to have a lengthy conversation. Take whatever initial opportunity is granted, yes, but it is not sufficient in representing Christ to simply put a sticker on the back of your bumper and drive just anywhere, or throw up a sign in a stadium while this whole you know, craziness is going on and think that we are doing right by our Heavenly Father. Our calling is deeper and more profound than that. It requires an attention to detail of Scripture, an ability to understand it and love it for ourselves so that we might do as Augustine said, show people that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I love that quote. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Naturally, if you were to make that statement to someone, they would ask, naturally, want an example. Can you give one? If you can give one, then you are a diligent scribe, at least in that example, one who can take from his storehouse, from his treasure, something that is old and something that is new. And you're on your way to being a better sower, to be able to follow in the footsteps of Christ, to obey the Great Commission, and to cast good seed. What is the seed? The Word of the Kingdom, the whole counsel of God, the Old Testament and the New, the comprehensive, all-consuming, glorious, authoritative proclamation of the Lord of glory, inarguable, immutable, transcendent, never-returning void, always accomplishing that which God intends it to produce. It is the Word of God that is the seed in our hands as we sow. So now that we've considered the proactive elements of this parable, the sower and the seed, let me move to the reactive aspects, and that will be the remaining points of the message, which are the kinds of soil. The soil reacts to the seed in different ways, based upon the quality, the makeup, the conditions upon which the seed is sown. Secondly, in this message, we'll consider wayside soil and the evil one. Then that we'll follow with the rocky soil, persecution and tribulation. And fourthly, thorny soil, cares and riches. And finally, good soil and fruit. Drawing our attention back to our text in verse 3, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Some seeds fell along the path. Remember that well-trodden thoroughfare through those blocks, those quadrants, those plots of planted area in the Near East? Some of the seed happened to land in that area. The hard ground, impervious to water, it runs right off. Not loose enough to hold the seed. Uh, even if it were to germinate, the uh, 
root could not penetrate, and even before it has a chance to sprout, certainly the birds will come and consider it an easy meal. What is this seed or this soil, I should say, along this path where the birds come and devour? Well, again, we have the explanation a few verses over. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. There is a fundamental and basic obstinance, blindness, and misunderstanding. As it's given here in between, eyes that are closed, ears that are dull and deaf, and a heart, most specifically, that cannot understand the gospel, that is the makeup in this analogy of hard soil. The seed rests on it for a mere moment before the evil one picks it from the path like a bird looking for an easy meal. Evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart of one who has hard soil. We might ask ourselves from the book of Matthew if there are any intertextual examples, examples in the book of Matthew of soil like this. We'll turn over to the end of this section, and I think we have a great example in verses 53 and following at the end of chapter 13. Listen to how the word from, mind you, the Lord of glory, how it was received in Jesus' own country. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Verse 53, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? See the familiarity here that has hardened their hearts? They do not have the perspective of Scripture to see who it is that is speaking to them, to hear what it is he's saying. Where did this man get all these things? Verse 57, they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. A troubling section to be sure. You see, the sower, when he scatters seed, he doesn't scatter seed on the hard pack on purpose. That's something that maybe the wind blows over and it's more of an accident, if you will, than something deliberate. And in this section, because of the hardness of the hearts of those most familiar to Jesus in his life growing up, he did not do many works there, many mighty works there, because of their unbelief. Could judgment for a land, hardened by familiarity with religion and the Scriptures and Christianity, a distant relationship, I know somebody have heard it before, I can tune into it on the radio, I, there's a channel on television, I've been barraged and I can be at any given time with a hundred cliches coming forth from all these media outlets about Christianity generally speaking. Is that proliferation? of seed as it were, rendered the soil of the American heart hard and impervious to growth, so that now it is less and less likely to take root, and it is more and more likely that the evil one as a bird of the air comes down and steals it. I think only a blind person or a fool would not judge that we have grown hard of heart. If I were to make a case for any one of these soils being most prevalent in our society today, around us, in our environment today, it seems to me that far and away, the hard-heartedness, the downtrodden path, the thick heart, the thick skin, grown contempt through familiarity, seems to be our experience around us. This is a shocking place to be. Notice it brought an obliv- an, a sort of oblivious response from locals, and in some cases even hostility. And this wasn't the only sector that was obstinate to Jesus speaking, had hardness of heart. We think immediately of the hard-hearted Pharisees. 
Those that from the very onset, in the words that Jesus spoke, set themselves against it. And these were an unlikely group, at least by man's judgment, to be obstinate to the Word of God as they were supposed to be given to understanding it, supposed to be the experts in the law. Yet they, like Jesus, familiar, like Jesus' friends and relatives, where He grew up, did not receive the Word of the kingdom into soft soil, but it bounced right off and was soon gobbled up by the evil one. And indeed, those who could have been his biggest champions became his greatest nemesis. Modern applications, I mentioned one or two, but there are so many, too many indeed to mention. I think about the civil sphere of our law today and how... In our misguided notion of pluralism, we have quarantined the public sphere from anything resembling truth anymore. It's not that man's heart has grown hard, it's that he's actually legislated hardness by authoritative fiat, by uh, legislatures and presidents and policies from Washington down to the local level. It is getting to the place where sharing the Word of God in the places where it's most needed to establish the grounds of thinking, righteousness, ethics, and law, it is most in those areas and quadrants of society reviled and despised. I am telling you it is to our peril and judgment that we suffer under these conditions. You know, it wasn't always the case. I wonder how shocked you'll be if you would share my shock When you hear this, as far as I know, this is a section on blasphemy laws that is still standing law. The Massachusetts uh, website, I downloaded this from their website. Chapter 272, the state of Massachusetts, section 36 says the following about blasphemy. Whoever willfully blasphemes the holy name of God by denying, cursing, or contumulously reproaching God his creation, government, or final judging of the world, or by cursing or contumulously reproaching Jesus Christ or the Holy Ghost, or by cursing or contumulously reproaching or exposing to contempt and ridicule the Holy Word of God contained in the Holy Scriptures, shall be punished by prison, imprisonment in jail for not more than one year. That state of Massachusetts law, ladies and gentlemen, how far have we fallen? We've fallen so far in the hard-heartedness of our society that now just about the opposite is true. If you were to rise to the legislature and start to speak against homosexuality as a perversion of God's created order, deserving of judgment akin to Sodom and Gomorrah, In the Massachusetts legislature today, how soon do you think you'd be removed from that body? How soon will it be in any number of legislatures across this land that you will be condemned and actually tried for so-called hate speech crimes when it was once against the law to denigrate God's word in the state of Massachusetts? I was listening to a speech from a Western legislator this week and representing the state legislature in Idaho. And it was so refreshing to hear him say he loved Jesus Christ and to hear him say twice in a political speech, the Scripture says, and I thought to myself, how far have we fallen? The places of authority do not stand on the Word of God anymore. That's just one example. Think of academia Another area, higher learning, state-funded education, and even some private schools, they quarantine, they section off the areas of so-called liberal arts from any mention of the holiness of God, inevitable judgment, the glory of His kingdom, the message of the Scriptures, and the God who is and forever will be, of whom and to whom and through Him are all things. And so deep, And systemic is the hardness of heart and soil of the American consciousness that is becoming even a faux pas to speak of things like religion with close friends 
any mention of truth or absolute standards or your own convictions is fine for you as long as you keep it between you and God or maybe your family in the closet of your own home. But if you bring it into a conversation in any way that would set the Word of God as a standard over two or more people, it is shunned, rejected. And so it is in our society by these modern examples that the evil one has found a way to come in and to snatch the seed of the Word of God. And we must pray. We must pray that the titanium plowshare of God's Word, as we've mentioned before at the end of 2 Corinthians, would dig in again to the hard soil of this nation, whatever needs be, so that it once again would be tillable and ready to receive the Word of God. Wayside soil and the evil one. We have a definition here from Christ's own words of what it means to be hard of heart and obstinate. Secondly, third point in this message, second point on soil, rocky soil, persecution and tribulation. Reading again in 13 verses 5 through 6, other seeds fell on rocky soil where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun arose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Again, other seeds, the second kind of soil here, rocky ground. They fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. Immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. Verse 6, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. And so upon the disciples' inquiry, we have again the interpretation Verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word of God and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So we have here an explanation. This rocky ground is like one who hears the word He immediately, his first response, his first impression is good, joyful. He springs up. There's visible growth to our eyes anyway, yet he has no root. The invisible but necessary support system for this planting is non-existent. He has no root in himself. He endures for a little while. But all it takes to blow over this plant, to scorch this plant, is a tribulation or persecution that arises on account of the word. Immediately he falls away. This will never do. This will never do. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus proclaimed that the conditions of faithfulness in serving His kingdom and proclaiming His word as a sower, as a planting, as it were, as fruit from the seed, which is the word of the kingdom of God, springing forth into new life in individuals, the conditions necessary must be able to withstand trial. Blessed are you, Christ says, verse 11, chapter 5. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus declares not only that a truly rooted and grounded seed will endure, has the strength to endure persecution, but he declares that it must be strong to endure persecution. Because persecution and tribulation are a reality of the Christian life. They're there by design. They're a testing mechanism. They reveal, as we've seen in 2 Corinthians, the commendability, the tempering grace within an individual, and indeed the surpassing power of God on the inside. If a seed was never tested, the world could never see its fruit. It would grow up like any other spontaneous growth based on any other frivolous endeavor. It would not stand apart or alone. Yet how does God separate the rootless seeds from the firmly rooted seeds? He is faithful. Faithful to distinguish between the two even in this life by bringing tribulation and trial. And so we have this picture of rocky soil. We might ask ourselves again, is there any examples in the book of Matthew of those who sprung up right away, who experienced that initial strong growth but fell away shortly? Well, of course, the example of Judas is the first one that comes to my mind in chapter 27, verses 15 through 23. Here in this section, Judas, 
who at once showed something of a commitment to Christ. I mean, he had followed him around. He had even taken on a role of responsibility and being the treasurer, yet he could be fall into this thorny soil category as well, was easily dissuaded when persecution came. Another example, chapter 27, verses 15 through 23, in fact, they record, I believe this is the section I was looking for, at the end of Matthew's gospel, the whole crowd that is actually convinced to accept a reprobate in place of Christ. The Pharisees were able to convince crowds to turn from Christ in favor of, of a serial criminal. So we remember when Barabbas was released. In John 6, verse 66, Jesus is preaching and He says, If you indeed eat of My flesh and drink of My blood, then you are My disciples. And this hard saying was enough that many who followed Him at that point, who had shown again that initial spark of life, fell away. So we see when it was unpopular to follow Christ, when the forces of evil and power were aligned against the witness of the Word of God, and when there were things that were spoken that you had to humbly accept, even if you didn't fully understand, difficult teachings that didn't jive with your preconceived ideas, those were two forms of trials and tribulations that came against the followers of Jesus even while He walked this earth that were enough to show they were not rooted And indeed, they fell away. Initially, they grew. They followed Christ. I'm sure applauded and praised Him. Told their neighbors. Even changed their lifestyle briefly. But indeed, it was to no avail. Because when the storm came, when the sun rose, when that testing time arrived, they proved to be not sufficiently grounded. And indeed, were fruitless. Modern applications again abound. But I am most likely to apply this section to the way we construct our evangelical outreaches and church order and things of that nature today. You know, in this example that I gave from John 6.66, it was the teaching alone that people were upset at and that caused them to take offense and walk away from Christ. Sometimes it's the teaching alone that people oppose because it's too heavy for them. They might complain about it on a number of different levels. But if the teaching from the pulpit is in line with Scripture, it is our duty, it is our duty to surrender to it, to submit to it. Now, because we are sensitive to the sin-guided sensibilities of a culture and apostasy and utter rebellion against the Lord, we'll often change our teaching from the pulpit to placate to the masses. Let's sugarcoat it. And so what, what do we do in this analogy? It's as if we spread a paper thin, maybe one inch deep at most, layer of soil across the rock. And then we water it and put on the miracle grow of entertainment thicker each week, expecting to produce fruit. Yet we are relying not on the Scriptures as powerful in and of themselves, not on the authority of our risen, exalted, and authoritative Christ, declaring to us the truth of the kingdom that we need to sacrifice all to follow, but instead on gimmicks that play to the senses of a culture that is lustfully pursuing its own experience and any little benefit to make their day a little brighter instead of being gut-wrenched by the sword piercing asunder and dividing between soul and spirit. We'd rather be stroked with the mink glove of pandering to sin And we often, in our program-oriented, 100 miles wide and one inch deep approaches to the gospel, the things we like to consume and the things we like to say, both hear and preach are often guilty of this. We indeed are guilty of, in fact, planting on rocky soil on purpose. But I'm telling you, a church that proliferates this way, a church that seeks the immediate first impression Strong growth will not endure trials. And trials are coming. They're promised. I'm sure the trials and the testing that will come down the road are greater degree, are greater than the trials and the persecutions we're enduring right now. I'm actually praying in some way in, on my stronger days that God would bring them. Because it seems to me His church would be stronger if a certain pruning could come. 
certain pruning in our own heart so that we pursue the things that are worthless and trivial less, pursue Christ more. And indeed, more than that, it's pruning sometimes in His church so those who aren't pursuing Him but their own ends would maybe be pruned aside if they do not repent so that Christ's work might be better represented across the board. And this is what happens when the sun rises on the stony soil. Those who have no root are shown to be as such, and they immediately wither and fall away. Let us pray again that we don't find ourselves in the soil category number two, rocky soil that sprouts for a season, shows an initial interest that really thrives on the novelty of the new. Oh, this is something new. I mean, how many of us pastors who attempt to preach the word faithfully cross our fingers when people first come through the door? And less important than attending uh, you know, one particular church is faithfulness to Christ, obviously. But how many pastors who are trying to be faithful to the word wonder, well, let's just give it a year. Let's wait for the first trial. I know for myself that I think a necessary eldership vetting process is serving alongside brothers in Christ at least long enough that they've gone through a difficult trial, really a persecuting circumstance of some sort. If they pass through that sunrise, then they can be assured perhaps more at a greater level, at least from our perspective, judging fruit, that those roots are going down deep. So a couple things to learn here. Embrace the deep roots Embrace the things that God says are substantial. Shun the things and oppose the things. Put them out of your affections, the things that are trivial. And pray, pray for the church to have an appetite for the meat of the Word and that they would soon realize that the junk food of what we feed ourselves on so obviously or so, uh, yes, spiritually speaking, is nothing short of additives and chemicals high fructose corn syrup, and whatever other analogy you healthy people want to use. Number four, thorny soil cares and riches. Thorny soil, the third kind of soil that we find. We continue to read verse five, other seed fell on rocky ground. It did not have much soil. Immediately it sprang up since it had no depths of, of soil. When the sun rose, when they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. And then in verse seven, we find... The thorny soil represented here. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. The disciples are asking the Lord, whatever could this mean? And so he tells them in verse 22, As for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Again, who are those who have received the seed of the word as on thorny soil? Those are the one of whom the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of, scripture, uh, of riches choke the word, choke the scriptures when they're preached, when they're offered, the word of the kingdom, because they crowd out and are in competition for the light, and for the nutrition, and for the water. In this area here, Matthew's gospel again provides examples i mentioned judas could fall into this category but who can forget also the rich young ruler who comes to christ in matthew chapter 19 and what is it that prevents him from coming to the kingdom of god it's not willingness to say the sinner's prayer don't you think i would think we could well assume that if jesus has said Upon his request, what shall I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus had said, you know, repeat this prayer after me, sign this decision card, and cha-ching, you're in. I'm sure he would have repeated that prayer. But Jesus saw something beneath the surface in this man's heart. What did he see? He saw the seeds of thorns planted there. He saw the deceitfulness of riches. He saw the cares of life planted there. In this example, in chapter 19, Verse 16, and behold, a man came up to him, that is to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? There's probably a hundred thousand things he would have answered in the affirmative. Hence, I will do it right away. But Jesus knew again where the thorns were, and he said to him, verse 17, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, Thou shalt not murder shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness on your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
The young man said, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier, another parable here, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples later asked, and who can be saved? Thankfully, we get the note of hope with God. All things are possible. There's a certain deceitfulness that riches can easily bring. The cares of life, which could be seen as competing responsibilities, can extinguish true biblical growth, true legitimate kingdom, word of the kingdom growth within the heart, from the soil of an individual. We need to recognize what Scripture would identify as competitive, competing false responsibilities that would preach to us a more compelling message than take up your cross Deny yourself and follow me. <coughs> There's other sections in Scripture. You remember parables Jesus gave where people were asking for what seemed to be a very reasonable request before I follow you. Can I please go bury my father? I forget the relative. Before I follow you, you know, I need to complete this business transaction or I've just planted a field and so on. And what is the message there that Jesus brings out? He says, anything that takes a hierarchical priority and your consciousness over me needs to be crucified. I am Lord. And those things that are competing responsibilities and deceitful ends and pursuits need to be placed under me. Then and only then will the seed be planted on soil that is fertile and rich and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. And so we see in Matthew's example and Jesus teaching many ways that this thorny soil, this concept could be applied to his own hearers. But today, we have even perhaps many more examples. Churches and religious expressions today are actually taking on the character of this very demographic that seeks after the deceitfulness of riches and pursues the cares of life. I'm not going to say the name of the church, but I have to tell you, I was brokenhearted. I was a little bit angered. This week, I, I pulled out the, the newspaper, the Northland Press, and I, I go to a schedule of one of the churches, yes, in our area, and I see the summer schedule. And I'm telling you, every single service had something trivial planned. And that was what was advertised. We're going to bless our pets and things like that. You guys know about those things if you live in Cross Lake. But I have to tell you, I think, that we are just as tempted and gullible sometimes to fall into the trap of the enemy as the church down the street. But let us be held to the same standard. Let us not trivialize the Word of God. Let's not reduce the Word of the kingdom to something that is just an event that celebrates our favorite hobbies. The things that we love to pursue in our free time that moth and rust destroy and fire can easily burn and thieves can break in and steal i don't believe when the framers were or when the uh, reformers were burned at the stake that they were fighting for the right to have services that were raffling off cars and all these types of things that really geared themselves to the culture and suddenly christ is a funny little footnote on things we otherwise love to pursue I think when we embrace those things, we bring the thorns right into the pulpit, right into the church, right into the pews. We actually plant seeds of deceitful riches. And we actually plant seeds of the cares of life if we're not careful. Let us be diligent. As the Holy Spirit identifies those areas, let us hold them to the standard of the Word of God. Let us pull them if He gives us grace to do so in order that we might once again find our soil free to receive the unadulterated, true and valuable word of the kingdom. And let us love that word for the word's sake, not because it's attended with things we just as well otherwise like to pursue. Finally, good soil. Thank the Lord that there are seeds that fall in the soil, verse 8. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, 
some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. There are degrees of productivity in the kingdom of God. There are seeds that produce more fruit than others. And God in His grace and His providence allows some to be a fruit-bearing tree that can feed a lot more than I can. I'm thankful for God using great men and women throughout the ages for that purpose. My only prayer is that I might produce something, something valuable for my children, for my wife, and for you. And I hope and pray that the Lord gives you such a deep desire to produce some fruit, something valuable, that your ears would begin to be open to what the Scripture would have to say. Your heart would be moved to obedience as to the direction to take in order to cultivate that kind of fruitfulness. That your ears would be unstopped. That they would receive. That your eyes would be unblinded. That they would be able to see. That your heart would be softened again. Put on the potter's wheel. That it would be made pliable to the sanctifying, regenerating power. Sanctifying, glorifying power that is summed up in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm praying for in our modern context, local bodies of Christ that are fruitful because they value the right things. Their soil of their heart has been sufficiently tilled and they look for fruit in the right areas, sanctification, discipleship, even if it's through trial, generational faithfulness. In closing, let us be reminded, this is one of those texts of Scripture that is so familiar Now we run the danger just in our familiarity with it, you know, maybe through Sunday school, little books, um, illustrated flannel boards and all that stuff, of losing its depth and profundity. This is not a quaint illustration. This is not a neat little story for people who are simplistic and just little children. It is for children, but it's for adults, and it is meat, and it is a sword. This is not just nice sayings and moralisms from a a gentle teacher who is okay with everybody. This parable is terrifying. I was brought to a reality of the terror of this parable this week when I thought about the conditions of the soil that are so prevalent sometimes in my own soul and oftentimes all around me in our culture. Ask yourself the question, how many seeds are being swooped up by birds as they fall on hard soil among those around you? Ask yourself, how many seeds are planted on a paper-thin layer without sufficient root or nutrient to give them life to carry them through the next trial? Ask yourself, how many seeds, when the Word of God is brought, that fall on these areas of soil? that are littered with weeds, cares, and riches, deceitful affections. That's a terrifying thought. Indeed, because there are so many. Every one of us in this room, every one of us in this world, illustrates Jesus' parable in some way. Today, this morning, we illustrate this parable. We fall into one of these categories of soil. On top of this, we're reminded from the context that the explanation of this parable was only given to a minority of the hearers. Ask yourself this question, which is more important, the analogy or the interpretation? The interpretation made all the difference in the world. The story didn't carry much meaning at all or weight with the disciples until Jesus explained it. Great crowds gathered about him in verse 2. And they heard the parable, but there was only a select few that heard the interpretation. Verse 10, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And finally, in closing, brothers and sisters, 
if you have been privileged to receive among Jesus' select disciples the privilege of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, I pray that you would, in light of this message today, see them for what they are, immeasurably valuable. That you'd value them so much that your roots would go down deeper, that you would share joyfully that value with others. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that if there are areas in our lives, for any of us in this room, that remain thorny, stony, and hard, to the seed of the word of the kingdom of God. And that if you have brought to our attention any way where we are demonstrating this type of soil, I thank you for your grace to call us aside like you did your disciples and to interpret your word to our hearts even right now as we listen. So I pray we would repent. I pray for each one in this room, however we are to apply this word, that you would lead us to do so. And I also pray for a hard-hearted culture that you've called us to be salt and light in. That we would be faithful to bring the word of the kingdom, not discouraged when the seed is gobbled, not discouraged when it's choked, but trust by your sovereign design there will be at points of your choosing a soil prepared by the Spirit to produce fruit by God's grace alongside us, 30, 60, and 100 fold. All for your kingdom's growth and advancement, all for the glory and namesake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would answer this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.